You're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Georgetown. For more information about Redeemer Georgetown, connect with us on social media or check us out at www.redeemergeorgetown.com. Well, we are continuing on this morning in 1 Peter, a sermon series that we are calling Exiles in Hope, and we are going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 on down through 8. Love for you to go ahead and turn there. We want your eyes to be on God's Word. You can turn there in your Bible, on your smart device, or if you have your study guide, go ahead and open that. Uh, as you listen, listen, we want to not just preach as pastors, Robert and I, but we also want to equip the entire church to hear from the Lord. And so as we go through this passage this morning, I'd love for you to take notes, underline in your Bibles, but listen, not for my voice, listen for the voice of the Lord. Listen for what he wants to say to you, how he wants to convict and encourage you this morning. Here is what Peter says in chapter two. Let me just read it over us. He says, so put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slandered. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. This is the word of the Lord for us, and we say praise be to Christ. Listen, about 10 years ago, a new show came onto TV chronicling the life of a family about 45 minutes away. Their names were Chip and Joanna, and the show Fixer Upper changed, I would argue, how most Americans look at their homes and look at the homes of other people. I will confess to you that Rachel and I were one of those couples that were, shall we say, impacted by this show. The show, if you maybe have not lived in the United States for the last 10 years, I'll describe it briefly. Uh, They take ugly homes, and in 30 minutes, in the miracle of editing, they turn them into beautiful homes that we would all love to own. Well, Rachel and I decided that we wanted to live that fixer-upper life. So in 2015, a couple years after the show came out, in the first year of planting a brand new home, we thought what would be great is to buy a home by, that was, by everyone's standards, utterly uninhabitable, 
And with four children living in my parents' three-bedroom home, we decided we would embark on fixing that home up. Now, you would have asked us, we had a wonderful picture in our mind of what that home would eventually look like. I mean, we could have given you detail on the flooring and the cabinets and the countertops and, and the, the unique touches that we would put in to make it feel like home and to truly look beautiful. There was only one problem. We didn't know how to get from ugly, dilapidated, and uninhabitable to gorgeous, beautiful, and fixed up. We knew where we wanted to go. We just didn't know how to get there. Now, most Christ followers feel like DIYers when it comes to the Christian life. We've got a beautiful picture in our head of where we want to go and where we ought to be. We know what the big reveal will look like at the end when we are finally fixed up. The problem for us as Christ followers is we don't really have a handle on how to get there. And this leaves us confused, exasperated, It creates doubt in us. John Piper was once interviewed and asked the question, what has been your biggest area of doubt in your faith? And his response was just how long sanctification, the process of being formed into the image of Christ Jesus, my growth in Christ, just how long it has taken. This is near and dear to my heart. I grew up in the church From early age, I could have told you what my life should look like, where, quote-unquote, I was going in the Christian life. But in my early adulthood, I walked away from the church because I had become exasperated and trying to get there and utterly failing. I didn't know what it looked like for my life to be transformed Well, as Peter turns from chapter 1 to chapter 2 in his letter, he moves on from a beautiful declaration of the gospel to how our lives in Christ are meant to look. But he doesn't just give us commands. He also helps us to see how our lives will get from point A to point B or what the gospel looks like played out in getting us from our former lives to our lives in Christ. Here's what I want us to hone in on today as we look at the first eight verses in chapter 2 of 1 Peter. First, the process of the gospel. The process of the gospel. And second, the person and power of the gospel. Now, let me caveat this for a second by defining what I mean by gospel. Most of us, when we hear the word gospel, if you've been a part of a church, we think of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, how he came to live and how he died and how he rose again. And that absolutely is the gospel. But the gospel is not simply those three facts that Christ came, 
and lived, that he died and rose again. The gospel is life-changing news of a person who is Christ Jesus. Meaning that the essence of the gospel is who Jesus is, God in human flesh, and who we now are in light of him. So let's dive in this morning and look first at the process of the gospel that Peter lays out for us in verses 1 through 3. He says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. You know, uh, sometime in my childhood, there was this thing invented that made me a great artist. This thing, I believe, was called paint by numbers or draw by numbers. If you don't remember it, it had dots all over the paper and numbers, and it made people like me who don't have an artistic bone in their body feel like they can create masterpieces. And, and I just, to brag on myself a little bit, I want you guys to know, I never encountered a, a draw by number that I could not complete. <laughs> I could hold a pencil, I could put it on a paper, and I could count upwards of 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70. But at the same time, let me tell you that I've also never met a blank piece of paper that I could create anything on that you would be able to tell was an actual object afterwards. Right? I love art. My wife is artistic and she can create out of blank canvas something beautiful and wonderful. But for me, I don't know how to go from nothing to something. But if you give me a process, if you give me some dots and some numbers, I just might be able to get there. Peter begins chapter 2, and he gives us some commands that are based off of the truths that he had just expounded at the end of chapter 1. Peter said that we are called to be holy because God is holy. In verse 16, it says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. That's the Lord God himself speaking. And he goes on and says, Because of that, we are to love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again. And now here, in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, So... Because of that, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Peter gives us these commands, but he's also going to give us a process. And here's why this becomes important. We tend to kind of skip through these and go, "Uh uh-huh, 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 as we read them. Put away malice, okay? Deceit, yep. Hypocrisy, that's not good. Envy, shouldn't do that. Slander. Definitely. Now, here's the problem with these. Most of these are not even so much actions as they are emotions. How do you stop 
being angry at others? How do you stop feeling envious of what other people have? How do you stop desiring to lie to people by only showing them the best parts of you, which is hypocrisy? This came home to me early on in ministry when I was talking with someone about anger problems. They were wrestling with anger in their life and in their marriage, and we got down to the question, so what are you going to do about it? How are you going to stop being angry? And I remember the person pausing, thinking, looking at me, and responding by not being angry. See, here's the problem. Secular society has all sorts of books and techniques when it comes to anger, but not a single one of them will help you not be angry. They will just help you manage your anger. Count to 10. Breathe deeply. Remove yourself from the situation. But notice what Peter doesn't say. He doesn't say, remove yourself from your anger. He says, put it away. Or in the Greek, literally, don't do it. Don't be angry. So how do we stop being angry? How do we stop feeling envious? How do we stop desiring to only put our best foot forward? Well, Peter gives us a process, what I would call the process of the gospel. He tells us how to put these things away, how we grow in holiness, how we become who the Lord desires us to be. And it's essentially this, two things we must do and one reality we must realize. First, Peter tells us that we must long like children for a pure spiritual milk. I'll paraphrase this as know who God is. We've got several newborn babies here within Redeemer. And without knowing every detail of their lives, I know that their children get hungry. And when their children get hungry, they get demanding. Children don't have to be taught to long or demand for nourishment. I've been reading a book lately called Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. It was written several years ago by an orthopedic surgeon who had spent most of his life in India ministering to, through medicine, a colony of lepers, not leopards, with a D, lepers. And as he was writing, he he put this book together reflecting on what his time examining the human body and how how it works helps him to understand the body of Christ, the church. And one of the things that he was marveling at in this book is how when an infant is born, Immediately, when that infant first begins to breathe, there is a reflex that it has not been taught at all to find nourishment. Its body immediately sends signals to its brain that it needs certain minerals and vitamins and calories to sustain their function. And so the child immediately desires to eat. 
Peter tells us that we, as spiritual children, need to long, like physical children, to be nourished. He says we must have a singular focus, a craving for that nourishment. This is actually what, if you remember the Beatitudes of Jesus, when he says, blessed are the pure in spirit, this is what this means. It literally means blessed are those that have a singular focus, that their focus, their intention, their desires are fixed on one thing and one thing alone. And Peter says that one thing must be spiritual nourishment. So what is this spiritual nourishment? Well, Peter has just said what it is. He says, starting in verse 24, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Peter tells us that what we need to hunger for, crave for, long for, desire is the word of God. That which introduces us to the person of God. It introduces us to the nature and character of God, who he truly is. The word of God that tells us that he is eternal, that he is triune in nature that he is omniscient and knows all, omnipotent, powerful above all, that he is self-existent, that he is faithful, that he is true, that he is holy and just and good and gracious and kind. Peter says that we must long to know our God through the word of God that reveals him. Uh, Lately, this past year, I've been kind of on a, a narrative kick in reading, and so I've I've read a lot of fiction, but I've also read a lot of biographies. And in reading the biographies, one of my favorite parts of reading a biography is when you get far enough along in the biography that you know the person well enough to guess how they're going to respond in the next situation. Right? It's as if, as you walk with them through their story long enough, you become well aware of who they are and how they think and what's going on inside of them, that when the next circumstance arises, you go, I know what they're going to do here because I know who they are. And Peter is inviting us to know the Lord like that, to ingrain ourselves, saturate ourselves in the word of God that we might know him. Now, why do we need to long like infants for this spiritual pure milk? Well, because like children, if we don't satisfy ourselves with that which nourishes, we will satisfy ourselves with that which does not. If you're not quite sure what I mean, it must mean you probably don't have a five, six, seven, eight, all the way up to 18-year-old. See, we found out this unique little thing, which is if you buy snack food or junk food alongside of healthy food, do you know which disappears first? It's not the healthy food. That was my child, by the way, <laughs> trying to cover up. No! If you buy, like, 
non-frosted shredded wheat and Lucky Charms. I mean, the Lucky Charms are magically delicious. And they will go quickly and much like that. We are tempted to gorge ourselves not on the nature and character of God, but to gorge ourselves on so many other things that the world tries to tell us we actually truly need. And so Peter says we must have a singular focus, that we must crave the word of God, that that be the thing that nourishes us and forms us and steadies us day by day. We forget who God is. And so we must again and again cry out desire and go back to the word of God. But we don't just need to know who God is. He goes on to tell us that this spiritual nourishment should lead us to taste something amazing. And that amazing thing is that our God is good Or to summarize it, we come to know what he has done. I would contend with you that all sin can be connected back to seeing the Lord and his goodness correctly. Start all the way back at the beginning with Adam and Eve. Why did they eat of the tree that they were forbidden? It's not because they were hungry. And it's not primarily even that the tree and its fruit looked good. The entire impetus of Satan, the serpent's argument against God, was that he was holding out on Adam and Eve. Did he really say you cannot eat from all the trees in the garden? Eve says, no, 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 we can eat from all the trees except for this one, because he said, if we eat from this one on that day, we shall surely die And the serpent says, no, no, you will not die. In fact, on the day that you eat of it, you will become like God, knowing good and evil. Do you hear the serpent saying, God's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to have what's really good. The entire argument rests on the serpent's ability to convince Adam and Eve that God is not good. And they believed the serpent's lies. And so then seeing the fruit was good to the eyes. Did you hear that? Then. They didn't even notice that the fruit was pleasing to to look at or pleasing to potentially eat until after they had believed that God was not good. Then they ate. Jeremiah 2, the Lord God speaking to Israel, makes this very clear. He says to them, what fault did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? Do you hear him? He says, clearly, you you believe that you have found a fault in me. And that's why you wandered away from me. Because if you saw me correctly, if you knew that I was truly good, pure, holy, righteous, and faithful, you never would have wandered from me. And so Peter says what we need as we come to know God is to taste and see, as the psalmist says, that he is good. How do we know that God is good? Well, Pastor Robert just quoted from Romans 8, chapter 32, or verse 
32. We know that God is good because He did not spare even His own Son. How can He be any better? His most high and valued possession, He did not withhold for us. Surely He is good. What we need in order to put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander is to long for the pure spiritual milk of the word, to know who our God is, and then to taste and see what he has done and that he is good. But not just that. Peter uses one more phrase, one more reality. He says in verse 2, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean that we are not saved? No, he's talking to Christ followers. What he's telling them is that they will grow up to fit what is actually true about them. Uh, Think of it this way. Every once in a while, we'll, we'll go to a store. We've got five kiddos, and so there's always clothes that need to be bought. And we'll see something that is both good and on sale. Jackpot. And then we'll see that size doesn't fit any of our children right now. But with five kids, it will eventually. And so we'll buy it and then we'll bring it home and we'll try and figure out which one it's closest to of the five children and have them try it on. And nine times out of 10, it doesn't fit, but we'll say something like this. You'll grow into it. John Piper describing this command to grow up into salvation, rephrases it this way. He says, be becoming what you already are. Let me say that again. Be becoming what you already are. It's such a great description of the process of the Christian life. Be becoming what you already are. You are saved. You are new. You are loved. You are forgiven. You are justified. You are holy. So begin to step into that reality Christ has already secured. This is the logic of the gospel. It goes like this. I've got a slide. God is, God has done, so now I am, which means I will do. God is, God has done, I now am, so now I will do. Let me apply this to just two of the commands that Paul gives. Put away all deceit and hypocrisy. What does this mean? Well, it means we lie to others about who we truly are. We pretend. We try to make people believe. We hide parts of us. Why do we do that? Well, we're fearful. We're fearful that we can't be who we really are. That if people really knew the true us, we'd be rejected or unloved or judged or punished. So now let's look at the logic of the gospel and how it sets us free to refrain from deceit and hypocrisy. One, our God is perfect, good, and kind to us. And in his goodness, he has saved an imperfect people. 
while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And not just that, but by making him, Jesus, who knew no sin, he has made us to become the righteousness of God. To put another way, he took an imperfect people, knowing that they were imperfect, he then clothed them in the perfection of Jesus. So who am I now? I am loved even though God knows the depths of my sinfulness, and yet I am at the same time perfect in the righteousness of Christ. So I don't need to cover up anymore. And I don't need to make anyone else think that I am anything better than what I am because there is nothing better than the righteousness of Christ. And there is nothing better than the love of God even in the midst of my brokenness. Envy. We are envious because we look around at other people's lives and believe that their lives are better than ours. So how does the gospel of the logic answer this? God is. He is good and kind and gracious in giving things. What has he done? He has already shown that goodness to us by giving us his son. And he promises to work all things together for our good. So what does that mean of me? It means I am not in control of my life and I don't need to be because my father is in heaven. He is a good father and he does whatever he pleases. So I don't need to be envious of other people's things because what I have is what is best for me and what I will receive from my good, perfect, faithful father is only that which is good. This is what it means to believe the gospel. This is what it means to grow in Christ. This is the process. And so what do you do when you are envious, when you do struggle with hypocrisy, when you want to cover up, when you are angry at others? Well, as the great theologian, Brian McKnight said in his 1999 song, Back at One, when I think my work is done, I start back at one. Is no one 30 or 40 in this audience? (laughs) Did no one watch Total Request Live in the early 2000s? Work your way back to the beginning. By the way, go look at the song. Great song. You're welcome if you haven't heard it. You go back to the beginning. If the fruit is wrong, if four is wrong, it's because something happened in one, two, or three. So go back and ask yourself, do you know God? Do you know what he has done? Do you recognize and realize who you now are? This is the process of the gospel. But Peter doesn't just give us a process. He also gives us a person and a power of the gospel. He goes on. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourself, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, 
But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Peter moves on and he switches metaphors. Switches metaphors from a baby being nourished and growing to a house that is being built from the ground up. He tells us that this house that is being built is a spiritual house or a temple, a place for God's presence to dwell. And he says there is a cornerstone for that house that the entire dwelling is built upon. The the cornerstone literally would have been an initial foundation stone that was set, and it was set in that both its being straight and its angle would be the basis for the walls and the structure that would come. If the angle was wrong, the angle of the walls would be off. If it was not set securely and level, then the walls as they would be built up would be off. Peter is borrowing this metaphor from Isaiah chapter 28. This is where he quotes from. If you were to go back and read Isaiah 28, you find that the Lord is speaking to Israel. And he says that they have made a covenant or a promise or an agreement with death and hell in order to escape difficulty or judgment in this life. What was going on is Israel, the, 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 the nation, God's people, were going out and they were making agreements and treaties with other nations, hoping that in making these treaties and agreements, they wouldn't be swept up when a great power would arise and come up against their walls. But the Lord God says, you're making agreements you're depending upon. You're trying to build a structure, a refuge that will protect you, and it never will. Instead, he says, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him, that cornerstone, he will not be put to shame. The Lord God is saying, you will depend on me and my cornerstone, and in that place you will find a true refuge. But here in this passage, Peter says that we are like living stones being built up upon this cornerstone. Now, Robert's going to speak next week to the end of verse 5, where it says that we will be made a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. But I want to pull specifically on the metaphor of us being built upon the cornerstone into the dwelling place of God. Why is it so important that Christ is the cornerstone? How does Christ as the cornerstone change our lives? Well, Peter says that we are living stones, right? It means that we are active. We are vibrant. We're not passive. But at the same time, in this picture that Peter gives us, what are the only things that these living stones are doing? They're just resting upon the cornerstone. They are being laid and are depending, are being stacked upon the cornerstone. Listen, the the process of the gospel, who God is, what he has done, who I now am, and therefore what I do, 
it gives us these beautiful guardrails to understand how the work of God shapes us and grows us. But the process is useless without the power and the person of the gospel. And the power of the gospel and the person of the gospel is Christ Jesus. Peter says, listen, you are built on Christ. And if you are built apart from him on anything else, you're a structure built on sand. Jesus himself in John chapter 15 says that apart from him, we can do nothing. Right? Athletes love the verse from Philippians, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. It's a good verse. It's a great verse. No one ever, by the way, puts on their like sneakers. I can do nothing apart from Christ Jesus. But that's what Jesus says. Yes, you will be made into a glorious, beautiful temple for the living God when you depend on me. Now, this has special significance for Peter, and here's why. Peter calls Jesus the cornerstone. But remember that Peter had a name before it was Peter. It was Simon. Jesus gives Simon the new name Peter in Matthew 16. He says this, Simon says to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Sina bar Jonah, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, Petros, the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus called Peter the rock. Now, if you remember a few passages later, after Jesus' arrest, how does this rock withstand not the gates of hell, but a servant girl in the courtyard? Not very well. He denies Jesus so strongly that he curses to this little girl's face. It doesn't mean that Peter is not a rock that the church is built upon. He's telling us we are living stones. But Petros is like a a, a pebble, a rock you could hold in your hand. And Peter says Jesus is the stone, the foundation. He is the true rock on which we all as Christ followers must lean. So what does this mean? It means that even the logic of the gospel, even our discipline, even our striving are utterly useless apart from the power of Christ working in our lives. It means we can't change our heart. We cannot change our identity. We cannot change our affections. But Jesus can, and by God's grace, as we depend upon him, he will. Peter says, as you come to him, a living stone, He says that we are being built up in order to believe in him. So the honor is for you who believe. We come to him and we believe. How do we do that? Think for a second of any gospel that you have read. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Any story of Jesus. Who comes to Jesus? The sick? The lame, 
the sinful, the broken, the rejected. You know who comes to Jesus? The weak. Or maybe another way to put it, you know who comes to Jesus? Those who know they need Jesus. Our weakness is designed to bring us to Christ. It is a grace of God when he shows us that we can't be enough ourselves. Because in that moment, when we have nothing of our own to grasp a hold of, we are finally freed and compelled to grasp a hold of, to depend upon the only one who can and will save us day by day, Christ Jesus. Paul tells us this. My, the power of Christ Jesus is made perfect in my weakness. Believing this truth means we don't run from our weakness. We don't run from our dependence. We don't run from our inadequacy. Instead, we embrace them as the ability to force us on to Christ Jesus. Ray Ortland sums this up beautifully. He says this, Here then are the choices we all must face moment by moment. Will we aim to be impressive? Will we expect to be in complete control? Will we ensure that we always come out on top? Or will we be happy for the power of Christ to rest upon us in our endless weakness? Because no man can give at once the impression that he himself is clever and that Jesus is mighty to save. Jesus, not us, not you, not your discipline, not your striving. Jesus is the person and the power of the gospel. And he is the only foundation by which we can be saved. Let me end here. Martin Luther, uh, reformer, pastor, church father, he, he started using a, a Latin term to describe when we live our life out of the flesh rather than by the spirit. And the, the term is incurvitas. It literally means to be curved in on yourself. Or to, to put it a, another way, to put your eyes only on your own belly button. It's really hard to stare at your belly button and see what's going on around you, but that's what shame and guilt and anxiety and insecurity and doubt does. It's what sin does. It focuses our eyes inward. When we see sanctification wrong, when we feel unsure of whether or not we're good enough or we're being built up enough or not sure what the Lord is doing, our eyes tend to go inward. But what Peter is doing is he's lifting our eyes upward. And he's placing them not on ourselves as our own hope, but on Jesus, the person and the power of the gospel who through his life, death, and resurrection and his ongoing work at the right hand of the Father is in fact growing us into his very image. And so here's my commendation. Lift your eyes up. Know that he who began a good work will see it to completion. When you see fruit that is bad, don't look down. Look up. When you feel like you can't do it, don't look down. 
Fix your gaze on Jesus. Pray with me.